Thank you so much, praise team, for that wonderful time of worship together that leads us so effectively into our message this morning. And I would like to begin today by inviting you to recite with me one of the great promises of all of the Bible, Romans 8.28. Would you join with me as we say this together? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And all God's people said, what an important thing for us to be reminded of as we begin uh, a new year together. Uh, this great promise in the Bible actually is telling us two things. Uh, one, God has a great spiritual purpose that He is accomplishing in the life of every single Christian. And the second thing that this verse is telling us is that God accomplishes His purpose through His providence. Now, I think one of the best definitions of providence that I have ever seen comes from Desiring God Ministries. And this is how we can define the providence of God. God is present and active in all His creation. His eye is watching. His hand is working to uphold and govern all creation, to fulfill all His purposes for His glory and the good of His children. That's what Romans 8.28 is teaching us. Now, we often question this, particularly when we are going through very, very difficult times. Uh, this is the family of the New York Police Department officer, Rafael Ramos, who was gone down in cold blood as he sat with his partner in their cruiser in New York City. And as you see the grief on this family at the funeral, it is very hard. Very hard to imagine that they are able to affirm the goodness and the providence of God right now in their life. But what the Bible is saying to us is this. God is so great and He is in so much control that His providence includes even our sufferings which very often seem very contrary to us. Those sufferings, says the Bible, are subject to God, and often they are even used by Him to achieve His purposes, His will, and our good. Now, probably there is no book in all of the Bible that teaches us this than the book of Ruth. As I was studying this past week, the book of Ruth, and anticipation of bringing a series of sermons this year on this wonderful little book, I came to understand that it is a great illustration of Romans 8.28. Ruth has been called the most beautiful short story that has ever been written. Yet God only directly is active two different times in the book. But as you read this little story, from first to last, what you discover is God is the central character. He is working for His glory and for the good of His people. This morning, I want us to open up this book. 
And as we do, we open up with a family in very, very deep tragedy. And I want to bring a message this morning that I've entitled, Is God Really in Control? Finding Meaning in Tragedy. And we're going to begin with tragedy, but we're also going to see today God's providence behind it all. Let's begin, shall we, by looking together at Naomi's unexplained tragedy in verses 1 to 5. Would you take your Bibles and turn there with me? If you'd like to use the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it is page 411. And let's read verses 1 through 5 as we begin this amazing story. Ruth chapter 1, and follow along as I read verses 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malone and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malone and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. After the opening two verses of the book of Ruth, it becomes very, very clear to us that Naomi is the focus of chapter 1. She is really uh, the subject of this story. This is her story in this opening chapter. Now what's interesting is Naomi is uh, a name that means pleasant. Uh, It's one of the ironies, one of several ironies in this opening introduction that highlight the sad tragedy of this family. Another irony is that Bethlehem means the house of bread. It was the place of food. It was well known for its wheat and barley crops. And here we have more irony. In the place that was known for plenty, there is famine. And then these two boys, Malone's name means sickness, and Kilion's name means frail. In any story, that's what we call tragic irony. Both of these men die young, fulfilling their names. Now as we read what happens to this family, we agree with one man who said about this family, this is a family that was born to trouble. And two questions ought to be plaguing our minds this morning as we have read these opening five verses. First question that ought to be plaguing our minds is, how could all this happen to such a nice lady? A child of God. A woman whose name means pleasant. How could all of this happen to her? And then a second question ought to plague our minds. Why would God allow all of this to happen? Where is He? 
As we open up this book, he seems completely absent from this family. Now, let's notice the things that befell this woman and her family, all right, Uh, to understand the sadness of this tragedy. First of all, they lost their homeland. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that a famine came into Bethlehem, the area of Judah, uh, very near Jerusalem where they lived, and they had to leave their homeland because of a lack of food. Uh, do you know this is the very first famine that occurs in the Bible from uh, since the book of Genesis? All four patriarchs experienced famine. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph all experienced famine. And God had various purposes for allowing famine. In fact, for Jacob and Joseph, he had a very good purpose for the famine that he allowed. So since there is no purpose stated in verses 1 and 2 for the famine, it is best to assume in this context that this was simply a tragedy that befell this family that they had to deal with. Now, uh, all of us know, anytime you have uh, got to move, and leave your relatives and your friends, that's a very difficult time. If we've ever had to do that, we know how hard that is on us. But let me ask this morning, how many of us have ever had to move because we were starving? Probably none of us have been in a situation like this. And we get the impression that there were friendly relations between uh, the country of Moab and Israel at this time. But we know that Moab had often been very hostile to the Israelites. So this famine must have been very widespread. It must have been going on for many years to cause such a move. Now let me just bring up a map this morning and and show you the place to which they, they moved. Uh, They were living in Bethlehem, uh, just a couple of miles from Jerusalem in Judah. And even to this very day, rainfall patterns in Moab are very different than they are in Israel. Uh, From this map, if you look very closely, you would be able to discover that Moab is somewhat up on a high plateau. And thus the rainfall patterns are just a little bit different. And so we can see the route that this family would have gone. They would have gone uh, around the top of the Dead Sea, uh, across to the plateau of Moab. It was a distance of about 70 to 100 miles, and uh, it would have taken about a week on foot. And when they arrived, they were in alien territory where at least there was food. Then... Then, the husband died. Verse 3 says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now this is very shocking to us because of Elimelech's apparent character. The name Elimelech means, My God is King. He is the only one in the entire Bible who has this name. 
And sometime, if you were to go back to Genesis 12 and compare the episode there of Abraham with these opening three verses, you would see that there is a uh, parallel between Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, and Abraham. So Elimelech is now introduced to us in a very positive light. Uh, Verse 1 says that he went to Moab with his family to live for a while. Uh, What that says to us is he had gone to wait out the famine, and he was planning to return as soon as possible. Now, follow this. For him to die in an unclean land and to be buried there was not only a tragedy, but for a Jewish man, a tremendous, tremendous humiliation. Now let's continue on with the story. After this, we discover that Naomi also discovered that she was going to be without grandchildren. Verse 4 tells us that these two sons married Moabite women. One named Oprah and the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Now, nothing prohibited these men from marrying marrying Moabite women. In fact, from Ruth's testimony a little bit later in the chapter, it appears like they were Jewish proselytes. Uh, The very fact that they were willing later on uh, to leave Moab and go back to Judah with their mother-in-law, Naomi, suggests that they may have become believers. And so in the midst of all this unfolding sadness, there is a hint of joy here in this sadness because the the sons had found wives. But I want you to notice that joy, very short-lived. Because after ten years, they had no children. If you go back to Genesis 16.3, you'll discover it was exactly ten years after which Abraham and Sarah gave up on having children. The parallel here with these two sons and their wives suggests their marriages were infertile. They couldn't have children. Now, you know what? For us today, that would be a disappointment. But in that day, for Jewish families, this was a catastrophe. The ability to carry on the family lineage for Jews was tied to God's blessing and the family inheritance. For one's future name to go out was viewed as a curse. But then we discover something more. We discover that the sons were lost. In verse 5, they also die. Is anyone at this point tempted to think we're reading a work of fiction? Anybody? I mean, you read this and you say, this cannot be. But we need to understand, we are talking here about real people, real believers experience real trouble. We don't know who the author of Ruth was. It's a possibility it may have been the prophet Samuel. Uh, 
But he graphically portrays the sadness in this. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us that Naomi's husband died, but she still had her sons. Now you drop down to verse 5, and my version, the New International Version, has her name, Naomi. Actually, it is literally the woman. Verse 5 says, Now the woman had neither husband nor sons. So uh, the author is letting us know of the tremendous tragedy. Here we have a woman left alone, and this probably brings us to the very depths of the reality of her tragedy and her disappointment, because what this meant for her was that her whole identity now is lost. Did you notice twice in these verses, we are told Naomi was left. In verse 3, left without her husband. Now in verse 5, left without her sons. In a society that was dominated by the male social order, a woman's identity was always tied to her family before she was Naomi, the wife of Elimelech. Now as we get to the end of this unfolding tragedy, she is just the woman left alone. Let me read for you what widows like this experienced in the society of that day. Listen. Widows in the ancient Near East had lost all social status and generally were also without political or economic status. Typically they had no male protector and were therefore economically dependent on society at large. They would equate to the homeless in our American society today. Now, I just have to look at this, and I have to say, it takes a pretty cold-hearted person to read this and not be broken-hearted for this family. And what makes this even more heart-rending is these people are believers, and this is a true story. I have to stop right here for just a moment, and I have to make two applications. Let me give them to us for our consideration here this morning. Here's the first one. Tragedy is often the lot of God's people. As I studied this story afresh, what I realized is Naomi is the female Job of the Bible. These opening five verses parallel the opening two chapters of Job. And Job lost everything, though he was a man of God and a child of God. And now we come here and we see that Naomi has lost everything except one thing. She still has her health. Everything else has been stripped away. And tragedy is often the lot of God's people. Here's a second application that I think we have to make this morning. Why some suffer more than others is not revealed. This morning in our sanctuary, 
all of us have had some suffering. But some of us have had great suffering. And if we wonder, why is it that some believers suffer less and others suffer more, the Bible does not answer that question. Do you know the Jewish rabbis uh, had a field day with this story? Uh, the Jewish rabbis wrote commentaries on the Old Testament. They are called the Targums. The word Targum means interpretation. And they vilified in the Targums Elimelech and his sons. In fact, listen to how one Jewish rabbi translated verse 4 about the marriage of these two sons. This is what they, they translated this verse in this way. They transgressed the decree of the word of the Lord and took unto themselves foreign wives from the Moabites. And in the Targums, the rabbis concluded, all three died because they all sinned. As a matter of fact, they blamed Naomi as well because they said when her husband died, she should have immediately gone back to Judah because her husband had been judged by God for leaving the land of Judah. Can I say to us this morning, that is reading into the text, not reading out of the text. By the way, we shouldn't do that, should we? We ought not to read into the text what is not there. We are to read out of the text. And the better answer here as we open up this book is that God permits bad things to happen to God's people. Now, this pretty much destroys the notion, come to Jesus and He will erase all your troubles, right? This pretty much destroys that notion. Christianity is not an escape from the real world. Christianity is preparation for the real world. Amen? This morning? Yes. Come to Jesus. He will forgive you. He will make you a better person. He will give you purpose in life. But He will not give you an easy, pain-free, trouble-free life. Jesus will clean us up. He will strengthen us to make us sturdy to live in a very, very difficult world. He will give us the hope of heaven. He will even give us, in the midst of our troubles, confidence that we are not alone and that God is with us working for His glory and working on His behalf. Jesus will do all of those things but He will not remove the troubles, perplexities, and problems that come to our lives. This is parallel to Job to tell us this is often what God in His providence allows into the life of His people. But now let's notice, as we start with this tragedy that rends our heart, 
In verse 6, God appears for the very first time. And as he does, what we learn is God's undeclared providence in this family as well as in the life of every Christian. Look at verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living, and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. A couple more lessons for us this morning in this story. Let me give to you the first one this morning. First of all, as, as we consider God's dealings with us as his people, we understand that God is present with his own though often undetected. If we were just to sometime read these verses in isolation from the whole rest of the book of Ruth, what we would conclude is God is nowhere in sight. By the way, isn't that how we feel in the midst of trials? In the trials of our life, and and I've felt this way many times, and, and I know that you have, we often wonder, where is God? And Satan comes along and he whispers into our ear and he says to us, God isn't there. There is no caring God, at least not for you, or you wouldn't be in these circumstances. That's how we feel in the midst of trial. But what is amazing here is God was watching over Naomi all of the time, preparing her to glorify Him. These opening verses take many, many years. We don't know how long this went on. We know that the the sons were married there for at least 10 years. So we could be talking about a process of easily 20 to 25 years that this went on. And as tragedy after tragedy after tragedy unfolds, God seems to be unpresent until we come to verse 6. And then a little note is given to us that is absolutely wonderful. Naomi hears that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. That little expression, come to the aid of, in the Hebrew Bible is one word. It is a word that means providential care. Now I want you to think about this. This is the Hebrew word in the Bible that refers to the providence of God. Remember the definition of God's providence? Let me bring it up for you again. Here it is. God is present and active in all His creation. His eye is watching. His hand is working to uphold and govern all creation to fulfill all His purposes for His glory and the good of His children. This is exactly what God did for Naomi. When the time was right, in the plan of God, he lifted the famine, causing her to go home. 
Let's look at the second lesson this morning. Lesson number two. God works to encourage our hope that His plan is good for us. I don't know what trouble or difficulty you are going through today, but I know in my own life that uh, when God seemed to be undetected, there were always little things that He did that indicated He was not only there, but He was working out a good plan in my life. Now, in verse 6, when it says that God was providing food for His people, what that is telling us is that He was lifting the famine and He was returning fertility to the land. Now, it's very clear Naomi does not understand what this means. She doesn't understand that God is going to return fertility to her family. In fact, she is going to have a grandchild. That grandchild is going to become the grandfather of King David. So Naomi, in the plan and purposes of God, is going to be the great-grandmother of the greatest king who ever lived. She doesn't have this figured out yet. She doesn't understand what he's doing in returning fertility to the land. He's going to do in my family by returning fertility to our family. She doesn't understand that at all. Do you know why this is here? This is here for you and me. We know the end of the story. This is here to raise our hopes. This is here to tell us, whatever the problem, God is bigger than the problem. He can reverse our circumstances as He does here. Or if He chooses not to do that, He can make us strong and sturdy so that we can overcome those circumstances. I love what one of my old professors, uh, Tom Constable, has to say at this point. Listen to his words. Circumstances do not make or break a believer. Faith does. Circumstances are not determinative. They do not determine our spirituality. Our attitude and relationship to God do. No matter what circumstances you're up against, you can be an overcomer by trusting in and committing yourself to God. That's why this is here. It is to let us know that God is always working even though it may be a long time of being undetected to encourage our hope in His good plan for us. You remember the grieving family of Officer Ramos that I showed earlier. Let me tell you the rest of the story that you may not know. Officer Ramos was studying 
to be a lay chaplain in the New York State Chaplain Task Force. He had been through 10 months of training in which he had turned in every assignment and he was ready to graduate December 20th, the very day he was gunned down in cold blood. Can you believe that? He was called a cop with a pastor's heart. And the president of the chaplaincy association, who was in charge of his training, said this about Officer Ramos. Raphael was a person who loved the Lord. He had been serving faithfully for 14 years at his local church, Christ Tabernacle, in Glendale, New York. The Lord was at the center of his life. God played a role in everything he did. He saw himself doing chaplaincy work full time after he retired. He was a cop with a pastor's heart. People, he, he was one of New York's finest. He was serving God by serving his community. He didn't know as a police officer he could be a lay chaplain. When he found out he could, he prepared himself so that he could serve the people that he loved. Why did God take this choice man? I don't know the answer to that. But maybe part of the reason is God wanted to give him a bigger impact on people like you and me. You see, what his story tells us is death is coming, life is short. Heaven and hell are real. And knowing Christ and serving Christ are the things that only in the end are going to be worth it. And in the providence of God, He allowed this choice man and his family to experience this tragedy to magnify His life story. This morning, God is working in the same way in our lives as well. Some of us here have suffered much. Some of us have suffered little. Whenever I enter into a new year, one of the thoughts that comes to my mind is I have no idea the tragedies that may befall me or the people in this church that I love. But I know there is a great God who has promised all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All of God's people said together this morning, yes, amen. Let's bow together in prayer.
Father, the ways that you deal with your children are often a mystery to us. Lord, from what we understand, Officer Ramos's oldest son gave a very moving tribute to his father. And Lord, evidently, you felt this family could endure this great loss. And the memory of a godly, committed, loving, Christ-centered father, though now taken from them, will light the way for their own journey of knowing Christ and serving Him. Father, today, we don't always understand Your ways with us. There have been many times in which You have seemed absent from us. Your presence has been undetected. And we have wondered why you have allowed what you have. But Lord, today we affirm that circumstances do not determine our life. It is faith that determines that. And we affirm that God, who is wiser and greater than we are, knows exactly what he is doing. And we affirm that even the things that seem so contrary to us, are subject to Him and a part of His plan to bring Him glory and to fulfill His great purpose in our salvation. And so, Lord, we begin this year in hope. We don't know what will befall us, whether it will be good or or bad. We don't know whether it will take us forward, humanly speaking, or, or take us back. We don't know the grief that we may experience. But we trust you today. And we believe that we can emerge from it stronger, closer to you, better witnesses, sturdier for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, all things are in your hands. You are the God who sits in the heavens. You you do as you please. And no one can say to you, why have you done what you have done? We thank you that you are the same God who reveals himself as a father, has written stories like this in the Bible for us, that we might be encouraged. Today, I know that I'm speaking to many, many folks who are dealing with struggles and questions. And just before we sing and our minds are taken away to other things today, I would just ask that you would quietly, as you think about your trouble, the problems that beset you, that you would affirm your faith in Romans 8.28. That you would say, Lord, I believe that you are 
working all things together for my spiritual good. You have a purpose and a plan far beyond my understanding that you are working out. And Lord, today I submit to that. I accept your will. However you want to change me, whether it is stronger faith that I need, whether it is correction or growth that I need, whether it is greater insight, whether it is using what I've gone through to help someone else. Whatever the reason and the purpose is, I submit to you. It is not circumstances that make or break me. It is my faith in an all-powerful, good, and providential God. And so, Lord, with that affirmation in you, we go forward into this year. Come what may, knowing the living God is amongst us and he does not fail. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I love this final song that we are going to sing today. It really speaks so much to the truth of God's Word. And let's sing it prayerfully and carefully unto the Lord, meditating as we do on each word. God has a purpose in your circumstances, and that purpose has to do with you and what He wants to do in you. And let's yield up our lives, even as we worship Him now, by affirming together with the hymn writer, our providential, loving, and directing God. As we get to that last verse, our pastors and elders and their wives will be dismissed. Have a great day in the Lord. Let's worship Him now.